As we return to our study in Revelation, I want to I want to uphold the absolute truth of God's word, but also encourage you to have some humility in your understanding of it when it comes to prophetic portions of scripture. This this might just be some Jasonology here, but in what I've seen, one problem with interpreting prophetic portions of Scripture, it, it's not so much that it's a person's interpretation is the issue. It's the dogmatic stance that they take as if, you know, we've got it all figured out. It has to happen the way that I think it's going to happen. You know, uh, a review of Scripture, if we paid attention, would, would teach us that the Lord always fulfills His prophecies His prophetic word is fulfilled literally, but sometimes surprisingly. Um, So I want to start this morning just by giving you an example of what I mean. This this is going to count as a short sermon before the sermon, okay? Um, And and you can look if you want to at Isaiah chapter 7. You don't have to, but you can look and sort of follow along. But I want to tell you the story that's happening there quickly. In Isaiah 7, it is the time of the divided kingdom, so the ten tribes in the north have broken away from the south, and so they're called Israel, and the south is called Judah, and, you know, the, the, at that point in time, the, the tribes in the north, Israel, would have been considered the bad guys, and the guys in the south, Judah would be the good guys, although Judah had a bad, a wicked, evil king named Ahaz. And two other kings have plotted against him. If you look in verse 1 of Isaiah 7, you'll see that as King Ahaz ruled Judah, these two other kings, King Rezin of Syria and King Pekah of Israel, have formed a military confederation in order to uh, come down. They have the intention of invading Judah. And the Lord sends the prophet Isaiah to speak to King Ahaz in verse 7 and essentially tell him not to panic. It's, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass, God says. And so starting in verse 10, the Lord even tells Ahaz to ask for a sign. Whatever you want in the, in the depth below or in the height above, ask for a sign. I'll do it so that you know you can trust my prophetic promise. And strangely enough, the king of people who constantly asked for signs, in this case was told to ask for a sign and adamantly refused. And so this is what Isaiah says in verse 14, and it's going to sound pretty familiar. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son and will call his name Emmanuel. But then he goes on to say, Curds and honey shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by her kings, by both her kings. Now that is... Prophecy, God saying what's going to happen in the future. And anybody in Isaiah's day would have understood that to mean that within a few years, 
Syria and Israel would no longer be a threat because King Rezin and King Pekah would both be dead. In the time that it would take a virgin girl to become married and have a child and raise it to the point where it knows the difference between good and evil, there would no longer be a threat. Rezin and Pekah would be dead. That's how it was fulfilled literally. And yet you seldom, if ever, hear that passage that text in its context, because while the Lord fulfilled his word literally, he also fulfills it in ways that are surprising. The Holy Spirit knew what he was moving Isaiah to say in that day. It's hard to imagine that anybody would have grasped the prophecy in Isaiah's day to mean that the virgin birth of Jesus was going to be uh, coming, you know, hundreds of years down the road. It was not until after it happened that the Gospel of Matthew tells us that, well, Emmanuel means God with us, and a virgin did conceive, and she brought forth a son, and while she called his name Jesus, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us, just like Isaiah promised. Now, the reason I tell that story is because It shows a a principle of scripture. Is prophecy fulfilled literally? Yes. Is prophecy often filled surprisingly? Also, yes. Lots of times. I hope we draw from this example that we should have some humility when it comes to being dogmatic about how prophecy will be fulfilled. There may well be times where we look at it in retrospect, when we look at the fulfillment, and in hindsight we say, oh, yeah, I didn't expect it to be like that, but it seems so clear now that I've seen it happen. This is helpful when we come to the events of Revelation 11, because our text this morning is going to raise some questions Right? And it's questions worth digging into. When we read the text, you'll see that there is a temple in Jerusalem. We'll ask, well, what is that temple? We read the text and there are two witnesses proclaiming a prophetic message from God. And everyone wants to know, well, who are these two witnesses? And yet, we won't necessarily be able to be dogmatic about the answers. Being as fixed and inflexible as we can is not going to serve us well. As convinced as I am about some of the events in Revelation 11 and Revelation as a whole, it seems wise to say I expect the Lord to fulfill this literally in his way and yet it might be surprising to me how he fulfills it literally. I trust him. I know what he knows what he has planned. So Revelation 11 Starting at verse 1, John says, And there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein, but the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it's given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall be tread underfoot forty and two months." And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. 
And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and will overthrow them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three and a half, three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them that saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe comes quickly. Throughout history, the Lord has maintained those who will be witnesses, those who will testify and proclaim the the light of his word in a world gone dark. Whether that was Moses calling the people to freedom from Egypt or Elijah standing up to the prophets of Baal or Jeremiah who was persecuted for proclaiming God's word to a wicked nation or the apostles themselves who came preaching and saying, be saved from this sinful generation. God is never without a witness, without testimony to the truth. To remind you sort of the time frame here in Revelation 11, we're, we're still in sort of that parenthetical section of Revelation between the sounding of the sixth trumpet and the sounding of the seventh trumpet. So, uh, actually, the, the angel in verse 15 is going to sound the seventh trumpet right after this morning's text. So the events here described seem to be the final portion of that seven-year tribulation period. John's already told us back in Revelation 10, verse 7, that when the seventh angel sounds, the mystery of God, which he declared to his servants, the prophets, will be finished. And that's about to happen in verse 15. So the timeline here, it's sort of of wrapping up, and yet there is some unfinished business, and specifically the unfinished business regards the Jewish people. Look at verses 1 and 2. John says, There was given to him a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood and told him to, to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein, but the court which is without the temple or outside around the temple, leave out. Don't measure it, for it's given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall be tread underfoot 42 months. John was just told 
at the end of Revelation 10 that he would have to be a witness prophesying to many people and nations and tongues and, and kings. And now immediately he is handed a, a measuring rod. Think of it like to a modern thought it would be like a yardstick except for a reed that was used to measure could be up to like 15 to 20 feet. And he was told to go measure the temple and measure the altar and, and also count the people who are worshiping there. Despite that command to measure it and count the people, we never actually get the list of dimensions or a count of the people. So as we read this, the exact measurements don't seem to be the point. The point is probably that there is a temple of God to be measured. Think about this for a moment. The temple in the Old Testament, the one that was built by David's son Solomon, was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., There was a small contingent of Jews who returned from captivity and they started rebuilding the temple under a man named Zerubbabel and that was much smaller. And that's sort of the final major event of the Old Testament is this rebuilding of the temple. And we know that uh, when the New Testament opens, King Herod has come along and he's actually had a remodeling project of the temple. If you remember when Jesus said, and he was talking about his body, when Jesus said, you tear down this temple and in three days I'll rise it up, the people's reaction to him was to think he was talking about the actual temple. And they said, we spent 46 years remodeling this place. You're going to build it up in three days? But now the apostle John is writing this revelation in in about 95 A.D., In 70 AD, about 25 years before John records this, the Romans come to Jerusalem and completely destroy the temple in Jerusalem. So as John is writing this about measure a temple in the future, the the readers of John in his day would, would say, what temple? There's no temple. They would have thought, there's, there's going to be an, another temple? That's what they would have grabbed from this passage. And biblically, I think, that is the expectation. You realize that right now, at this date, there is not a temple to the Lord on the, on the temple mount in Jerusalem. But based on what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15, he says that the the Antichrist is going to stand in the holy place, a reference to the temple. And Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 describes the Antichrist as, quote, the one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself to be God. I think the biblical expectation is that the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem again. Now, whether this temple that John's measuring is going to be built before the tribulation begins or during the first half of the tribulation, that's not something that we can be certain or dogmatic about. But it's going to have an altar, he says, probably that altar, that brazen altar of sacrifice, It's even going to include an outer courtyard for Gentiles in verse 2 
and, it, and it's pretty evident that there, it's there by the middle of that seven-year tribulation period. Look at verse 2 again. It says the Gentiles will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation period. In fact, the two witnesses that are about to be described are going to come and prophesy according to verse 3 for 1,260 days. That's again, three and a half years. One truth that we can affirm from Revelation 11 is that the Lord is not done with his people Israel. They have been rebellious. They do not deserve God's goodness, but he is gracious to them and has a plan of salvation for them. By the way, the same thing could be said about you and I. We do not deserve his goodness, but he's gracious and has a plan of salvation. The Apostle Paul dedicated three chapters of his letter to the Romans dealing with the question, is God done with his people Israel? Has he rejected them? And his conclusion is that they are like a a branch from an olive tree that had been removed from the tree but would be grafted back in someday. And his understanding came directly from the Holy Spirit, but no doubt also the promises of the Old Testament. The prophet Zechariah connects the return of the Lord Jesus in glory to a time when the city of Jerusalem will be flooded with scheming, violent nations, but a remnant of Jewish people would remain. This is what he says in Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 5. Behold, The day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem to the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain will go to the north, half of the mountain will go to the south. Then you shall flee for refuge into my valley, for the valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with him. How is all of that going to happen? Man, I don't know, but I don't anticipate that it's going to be a peaceful process for very long. Daniel seems to describe the Antichrist coming and making a peace treaty with Israel that lasts for three and a half years, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and then breaking it for the last three and a half years. Verse 2 of our text describes the Gentiles treading the city, the holy city underfoot for three and a half years. And considering that right now, at this day, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, there is a sacred Islamic shrine called Dome of the Rock there, I expect this is going to be quite a process. It's it's going to take the active intervention of God himself to make these things happen. And that 
might be the point of this entire text. The city is clearly broiling in conflict for three and a half years, and the Lord is going to intervene by having two witnesses declaring his word. Look at verses three and four. I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they will testify a thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. That phrase in verse 4, the two olive trees and two candlesticks or two lampstands is a reference to Zechariah again. In Zechariah 4, as the temple was being rebuilt in his day after the Babylonian captivity, God used two men greatly. There was a political leader, a governor named Zerubbabel, and there was a religious leader, the high priest named Joshua. And they were described there as the two oil, uh, two lamps that are burning and they're connected to olive trees. The idea there is that an oil lamp burns olive oil, but these lamps are, instead of being refilled with oil, are actually connected to an olive tree. The idea is that they have this never-ending source of fuel in order to to burn and bring light. Zechariah was told the symbolism there meant that those were the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Here, these two witnesses will receive from the Lord a continual supply of power, a continual supply of authentication for their message. John describes that power and authentication in verses 5 and 6. If any man hurts them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man hurt them, he must in that manner be killed. And these have power to shut heaven that it would not rain in the days of their prophecy and have power over water to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. The power of the two witnesses here is reminiscent of the miracles of Moses and Elijah. Elijah's enemies were consumed by fire, and Elijah prayed, and a drought covered the whole land. Moses uh, went into Egypt, and he turned the waters into blood and declared many plagues on Pharaoh's people. That being said, I don't know of any biblical prophet who had fire come out of their mouth. The question that comes up, and I got this question as soon as I said we would preach through Revelation, right away someone asked me, well, who are the two witnesses? Well, some say that it's Enoch and Elijah. The reasoning, I mean, you know that Enoch just up and disappeared. He walked with God without dying. And Elijah was taken up into heaven in a... uh, a fiery chariot without dying. And so the argument is, well, if it's appointed unto man once to die, and those two didn't die, so these must be coming back and be these two witnesses who are going to be killed. I used to think that. Some say it's Moses and Elijah, based on the miracles described, as I just kind of outlined, and the fact that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's sort of the way I lean, by the way. I think that's right. 
Some people want to spiritualize this and say the witnesses are the Old and New Testament or the Law and the Prophets. Meh. Look, if you wanted to insist, based on verse 4, that it's Zerubbabel and Joshua from Zechariah's day showing up again, I wouldn't try to argue you out of it. But you know who these witnesses are? Like, are you, are you ready for this? They are the two witnesses that God's going to send for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. If you want to insist that you know more than that, I'm just going to remind you that prophecy will be fulfilled literally, but often surprisingly. Even though my guess would be it's Moses and Elijah because they come with similar miraculous works. I would also remind myself that neither Moses nor Elijah actually had power to perform miracles. The God of Moses and Elijah had power to perform miracles. And he can use that power in any way at any time through any individual that he chooses. In this case, he chooses to display his sovereign power in order to protect these two witnesses and give confirmation to their message. And by the way, just like John was told to measure the temple, but we never find out what the measurements are, he tells us about these two giving a prophetic message, but he never tells us what that prophetic message is. The best we can do is speculate. And it's maybe that John doesn't record the message because it's a message for the Jewish people in Jerusalem in that day and we don't need to know it. But it's evident whatever the declaration of truth contains, it is offensive to the wicked world surrounding them. It takes miraculous power to protect these two witnesses and they're not going to be touched until their mission is complete. But when it's complete, that protection is lifted and persecution is the means by which their prophetic message comes to an end. Look at verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, right? Not a moment before. They're going to have the message that they've come to declare declared. When they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and will overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. When these prophets are to be killed, John introduces this character called the beast to the world stage. And there's going to be a lot more said about him, specifically in chapters 13 and 17. Actually, this is the first of... 36 references in Revelation to the beast, and it will become evident that it is one and the same with the Antichrist, the world ruler who will arise and make himself out to be God, violently oppressing the people of God in the process. 
John doesn't say a lot by way of description this time except to identify him as if he has arisen from the depths of hell itself, right? He ascends from the bottomless pits and he opts to make war against these witnesses and it is a battle that he's going to ultimately win against them in God's timing. What might be the most surprising aspect of this event isn't that this beast from the bottomless pit would make war against the witnesses of God, but that the world as a whole is going to rejoice over their demise. Can you just imagine for a moment getting a gift-wrapped package that you open to the chorus of Happy Dead Witness Day carols? John sees in this vision that all kinds of people in all kinds of places are going to see their dead bodies in verse 9 and demand that they be left out in the street to bloat in the sun and celebrate in verse 10 by sending presents to each other because they're so glad those two witnesses are dead. By the way, if you could also put yourself into the sandals of John's original audience, if you were a first century Christian, you would read that and wonder, will people all over the world really be able to see this? But now with the invention of television and satellites and the internet, it's it's not even a second thought to us. So I guess that's our opportunity to tell first century Christians, don't worry, this will be fulfilled literally, but surprisingly. The world celebrating the demise of God's prophets are so wicked that they treat this like a holiday. And it's interesting to me that John is called to proclaim God's word to that wicked world. Remember back at the end of chapter 10 and verse 11, you have to prophesy many nations and people and tongues and kings. And now in chapter 11, verse 9, those people and kindreds and tongues and nations are going to see their dead bodies. He's not exempting any kind of people in any kinds of places from this. In fact, even though verse 2 says this happens in the holy city, verse 8 describes their dead bodies laying on the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Clearly, that's talking about Jerusalem because that's where Jesus was crucified. Although that line also shows us that when John wants to spiritualize something instead of being literal, he can do that, but he also tells us that he does that. Why would he call Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt? Well, Sodom was a city of great sin. It was destined for God's judgment. And the city of Jerusalem being tread underfoot by Gentiles who hate God, it is, it is doomed for judgment. But it's also Egypt, which is essentially meaningful. It's meaningful for the Jews in particular because Egypt was a place of slavery and idolatry and oppression. But remember, the Jews in Moses' day would have been content to turn around and go back into Egypt and to return to bondage. Listen, you don't have to be in Egypt to be in Egypt. That is, you don't have to be in physical slavery in order to be in bondage to wickedness and sin. 
And there is only one power that is able to set any person free, and Jesus is that chain breaker who is coming. And he is so close to coming at the end of this text. Right? The end, verse 14, that third woe is coming quickly. Verse 15, the angel is going to sound the seventh trumpet. Start reading with me at verse 11. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on them which saw, saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up here. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake and a tenth part of the city fell and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000 and the remnant were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe comes quickly. The wicked world that is celebrating the demise and disgrace of God's witnesses, they are in for a shock. They are sending presents to each other. They are celebrating those dead witnesses. And I don't know exactly how it happens that they all see it. But like, if, if we want to imagine it as a TV news report, right? Some, some helicopter flying and shooting down video over the streets of Jerusalem showing the dead bodies of these witnesses. Right? I, I can imagine like the, you know... <laughs> For all the people here and all the viewers at home, you can see those vile prophets are still dead and rotting in the sun. Wait a minute. (laughs) You're watching it live, folks. This isn't good. Because they just start to rise up. The sinful world which felt, in the words of verse 10, that they were tormented by this prophetic message, in verse 11, they see those resurrected witnesses and great Fear falls on them. The witnesses had been the prophetic voice of God from heaven, but now in verse 12, the voice of God from heaven comes directly down and calls them upward, and they ascend in a cloud, and all of their enemies watch it happening. And they start to brace themselves for what's next, because an earthquake hits the city of Jerusalem. And John says, 10% of it collapses. 7,000 people die. And if that seems like a low estimate to you, you have to remember how much death has already taken place in the seven years leading up to this event. But the original text here is a little more clear about something. It's, it's sort of an unusual phrase, but literally what this says is, is that an earthquake killed 7,000 names of men. And I think the point is that it's not just some kind of random catastrophe in which 7,000 people die. It is a pointed, specific judgment of God targeted at specific individuals for destruction. But then John says, but the remainder were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Listen, the Lord has promised to bring salvation to his people Israel. And through the providential and powerful message of his witnesses and this evident confirmation and vindication of their preaching, 
salvation comes to Jerusalem. That phrase, gave glory to the God of heaven, is a term of genuine worship. And it is an unexpected development. Like if you've been reading along in Revelation, and you've tracked what John has been seeing to see this earthquake and judgment come and that people then turn to the Lord is in fact an unexpected reaction. If you remember back in Revelation 9, there was judgment came, but then in verses 20 and 21 it says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which they can neither, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders and their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Right? Judgment has come prior to this, and people would not turn. But here God uses these witnesses and this vindication and the judgment that follows. And there is genuine worship of the God of heaven as a response. The difference here is not the judgment. The difference is the grace of God fulfilling his prophetic promise. This time in the city of Jerusalem, that he will save his people Israel. Now, He might do it surprisingly, but he will do it literally, without question. He is a God who keeps his promises. 